And this is the word of the Lord. Amen? May God write it in our hearts. We may not sin against him. <laughs> this text rocks. Christ is building his church on himself. In case you've missed the theme so far and what we've sang, brothers and sisters, Christ is the rock of salvation. I hope you've heard that in the songs. Scripture says he's the rock rejected by the builders, but has become the cornerstone. He's accepted to those who are seeking shelter in true salvation. We must build on this rock. But you know, not everyone believes this, do they? I want you to consider it as an introduction this morning, the staunch contradiction between the Roman Catholic Church and particular Baptists in the late 1600s. So I'm going to pull directly from sources of the Roman Catholic Church that they believe today even regarding the church. Okay, listen to this, quote, only the Roman Catholic Church has the authority to interpret scripture and administer sacraments. It is the minister of redemption because only, it is, the, excuse me, it is the minister of redemption, yep, because only through it can full salvation come. That's from Vatican II, decree on ecumenicanism, ecumenism, sorry about that. Number three, they continue in other sources. It's ordained ministers. The church's ordained ministers act in the authority of Christ, but only when such authority is united with the Pope, who has been endowed with the authority of Christ, as has also its magisterium, which is infallible. Roman Catholic Church, only in connection with Pope, papal authority, can full salvation come through the church. In direct contrast with that teaching, in 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith states this, the Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church in whom by the appointment of the Father all power for the calling, institution, order of government of the church is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner. They react to what I read you, the Roman Catholic Church believes, by continuing and saying this, neither can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof, but is that Antichrist, that man of sin, that son of perdition, that exalts himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God, whom the Lord shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, end quote. Strong words from a strong time in history when such matters were the difference, honestly, between life and death for many. Very sadly so. But this morning, we must ask, which is it? Our text actually lends us to see Peter, Petros, the rock, Cephas, Simon, in action, a bit of a last summary type action that Luke is going to record for us in, in his work. And we need to realize that it is only through Christ working through a minister that power or authority or anything at all really comes to the church. Now, why do I bring up this controversy in the intro here? Well, things have cooled regarding this controversy. That's true. Over some 500 years later now, Right? There's a little bit more sophistication, a little bit more uh, nuance. There's, there's 
maybe some stodgy kind of uh, postmodern or post-Christian mixing that's happened where we don't really see the contradict, we don't see the the argument anymore. We don't see like the church and, you know, and then the Protestants. I mean, all that Reformation stuff that we just read about, making such clarity about things that were such a big deal, it's kind of seemed to disappear. But it rears its head. It really does. This passage today can help us to see clearly early on in the church what the church was and what the church's minister was. And from it, we can glean some really important things that can help us to look past the controversy I brought up to you into the original context that God has given it for his church throughout all the centuries. I hope you believe that this morning. Passages like today will help us see through issues, issues of past, issues of present. Today's passage holds out to us clearly what the church is and what a minister of the church does. It's simple, fairly short, and profoundly correcting to any error we may find ourselves in regarding Christ and his church. Our text shows two clear things for our outline this morning. It shows us Christ's church first. It shows us what is Christ's church. Christ's church is point one. And then secondly, it shows us Christ's servant. So Christ's church and then Christ's servant. That's how it shows us these things. Let's look at Christ's church. Look at verse 31. You heard me read it. Look at it again. Jesus said that he would have witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, and in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth in Acts 1.8. And in verse 31, you see this verse shows that his words were entirely truthful. And that being a witness, actually, the end result of being a witness was what? Church, a church, a ecclesia, a gathering, a group of people established for God's purpose. Verse 31, so the church... Luke is not wasting word. He's not being flippant. He's being very pointed. Notice he didn't say, so the witnesses in these areas. No, we witness, Jesus said, in those areas because it's in fulfillment of what he said in Matthew 28. Preach the gospel, make disciples, and teach them to obey my commands. Because of what he said in Matthew 18, that when you gather two or three and you are invoking heaven, the authority, the keys, the power of heaven is among you, church, where Jesus used that word. Matthew 16, where he builds on Peter's declaration, Jesus, you are God and we will follow no other. And Jesus says, on that confession, Peter, on that rock, I will start to build. I will build on that and I'll call it church. I'll give it authority in heaven to loose and bind, right? I mean, When Jesus said, be his witnesses, we see here what an encouraging pattern in Acts that we see emerging is this. The word proclaimed becomes the word received. And then the word received becomes the word in action. And the word in action becomes the word multiplied. It's preached. It's received. It is in act, it's in action, it's doing something together, and then it multiplies. All of that in verse 31. I hope you're seeing all this. <laughs> this verse is a summary statement, yes, but it is sp- uh, specifically telling us that the church had peace and was growing in these regions despite 
what has been going on, right? I mean, you ask yourself how crazy it is that we just saw a man converted who was a murderer. He's a part of a group that is breathing hatred and fiery hatred at that onto the church. There is only persecution. It's extremely unpopular to be a Christian. The Jews will hate you. The Romans will end up hating you. I mean, this is, this is first century Christian uh, belief that is only existing in the bubble of persecution. And yet, yet the church has peace. Verse 31, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. The answer as to how a church can have peace, because think about it. This church is, you know, Christ's church at this point in Acts is under intense persecution, we know. How can they have this peace? What does Christ's church possess in having this peace? How is that possible? Well, we get the answer. You know why no one is scared of being persecuted? Why they're not worshiping in secret? Why they're willing to die at the stony, at the end of stones from the hands of, of, of their persecutors like Stephen? The answer is the fear of the Lord. Look at verse 31 again. So Jesus said the end results church, church is in the places he said it would be. He said, he also said he'd give them peace, right? They have peace and we're being built up. How? Walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Do you see that fear of the Lord? The answer as to how they have peace is the fear of God is placed in the center of their entire life and they know it to be good, that it is holy and just, and that he is always watching out for them. And so, even unto death, they have it. No one takes this from the saint. Proverbs 1.7 comes to mind. Notice they're walking in it, right? So Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And in contrast, that, that verse finishes with fools despise wisdom and instruction. Well, what happens when we instruct or when we teach or when we learn something? We do it. So take anything. Take fly fishing. I've never actually gone fly fishing. I'd love to. One thing I know is, is that you got to learn such a fishing trade. It's not easy. And so you have to be knowledgeable. Well, how? How? Well, you practice it, right? You constantly go out, right? But fools despise the wisdom that is learned by hours spent on a trout river with no fish. They, they despise it. They despise the repetition. They despise the instruction. They don't have the beginning of knowledge. Why? Well, because they haven't rooted it in the promise that, hey, I can, I can provide for my family if I fish. It, Fly fishing for fun now versus fly fishing for when you had to survive on the Western Front are two entirely different fly fishings. One promotes me going out and providing, and so I'm motivated. The other is just for fun and pleasure. The, the idea of Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord, is there's this source, and here we see it in the church. Christ's church has at its center a, a reverent understanding of the great separation between them and God. Fear of God puts to death the fear of man in us. It leads us to God's plan. There is a type of resilience that the faith gives us that allows us not only to endure the hostile difficulties in this life, but to actually find the strange providence of peace and comfort that's described here. Afflicted saint, listen to me. If you're here this morning and you're afflicted, you're struggling 
Look to the scriptures here and then look to God who was able to take a bunch of persecuted people in these cities and give them comfort. That is not a misprint in verse 31. The church is comforted by the Holy Spirit. It's comforting. Christ's church has his peace. It has comfort from Christ himself. Now, I don't know how to quantify or qualify such peace and comfort that's mentioned here. Truthfully, it's natural to being born again, but it is supernaturally possessed. When we sing about it, we call it blessed assurance, right? Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Perfect submission, perfect delight. All is at rest. Where? In the heart of the Christian. We know that it is something supernatural. We call it blessed. But corporately, the church is possessing it here. And notice in verse 31, it's an infectious thing. So we know that it is a normal means of grace of God that gets stirred up in us that allows us to walk in God's commands, right? That's personal like discipleship and obedience. Obviously, this is a metaphor since the church isn't walking or moving, right? But the idea is that these people are collectively walking. That is, you know, there is an intentional word picture. They're moving. They're continually kept and hemmed in by the fear of God and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Such display of God's wisdom among these churches. You know what it leads to? The birth of more churches. All of this here in verse 31. Christ's church is a church that multiplies. That's awesome. Such a display of God. Luke is reporting the natural result of a covenantally faithful group of people called a church, believing the good news, that they should fear God because he's holy and would destroy them, yet they are comforted by God and his Holy Spirit, a strange mystery that they possess among them, and they're walking in it together, and as they do it, God's multiplying it. This is Luke saying, here is how you do Christianity. <laughs> you want to mature in Christ? Fear God. Keep his commandments. Wasn't that the conclusion of the book of Ecclesiastes, Redemption Baptist Church, when we were preaching it? Of the studying of many books, of great lengthy sermons, of awesome, de devouted conversations, the best fire pits, the, the most glorious reads. Pick up a Puritan. The writing of many things, there is no end. But this is, this is the end for man. Fear God and keep his commandments. This mysterious little group of Churches are growing in God's grace. And you know what it includes? It includes the jacked up, messed up, lost and broken lives of their witnessing friends, the people around them. And so therefore, it cannot stay within them. It will multiply. I'm coming at it corporately. You should easily deduce this morning that you can come at this individualistically because that's where the text goes next, right? But I'm saying before we even go there, right here, Verse 31, look at Christ's church. Don't skip this stuff. Look at them, fearing God. Fear God, beloved. Our prayers of praise, our prayers of petition, our worship and song, our time together, are we, are we spinning the wheels and wasting time? We're not. Fearing God above everything else is enough 
In it, we receive the comfort or the peace to be built up, to be built up into mature manhood and womanhood into Christ. This is Christ's church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Do you see it in verse 31? Do you cherish it? Do you love her? Do you want it? You want Judea and, and Galilee and, and Samaria and Nacogdoches on the list? For this is what this is us. 31 is a snapshot picture of people who have been born again. So Christ church. Christ church will help us. Secondly, we see in this text Christ's servant. Is our final point? Okay, Christ's servant is Peter. That's why I did the intro that I did, because there's a huge controversy as to who is Peter. Let's recap for a second this guy, okay? Let's talk about Peter's life together. Peter's life, both private and public. You know, it started very private. He's a fisherman with a family, doing what fishermen who were Jews in that time did, fishing the Sea of Galilee. Then he went public. This guy named Jesus Christ showed up, son of God, son of man. And what happened? Peter now becomes a public man, a follower of Christ, and a leader of men. He was an absolute leader of the disciples. I told you about Matthew 16. Can I remind you? In verses 13 through 20, we see that, that with the church in view, which is neat to see this passage this way, but with the church in view, we see that Peter's confession, that is, he publicly says, Christ, you are the son of God, the, one, the son of the most high, when Jesus asked him who people said Jesus was. Peter said, we're not going anywhere else because you have the words of life. You are the Christ. And what does Jesus do? He says, man, I'll build on that, on that confession. Same passage, this follower of Christ, leader of men. <laughs> Literally, verse 21, right after that in Matthew 16, you know what happens? Right after we see how necessary Christ alone is uh, at the foundation of Peter's leadership, it's, it's, it's all of a sudden like he's rebuked by Jesus, which is really helpful uh, to understand Peter. Because yes, he was this public uh, declarer of truth. He was also uh, publicly an enemy of God. So he literally is called by God. God says to him, get behind me, Satan, not Simon. His name's Simon. <laughs> he doesn't say get behind me, Simon. He says, get behind me, Satan, because the same guy who just professed faith in Jesus turns around and says, Jesus, you will not die on the cross. You will not rise again. No way. You can't be killed for us. And Jesus said, get behind me. You don't understand what you're saying. That public servant goes private again. You remember him betraying Jesus three times? He, he, he denies Christ three times in private, so, so he thinks. But then God restores him in private three times at the beach. You remember Blake preached. You can go back and find the sermon where Christ restores him three times over in his private life. And now you've seen him in the book of Acts, brothers and sisters, right? What has he done? Very publicly, he has been a preacher of the gospel. So far in Acts, we have seen him only in the public eye. He is standing and he is preaching after having healed a man. Or he's standing and preaching on the day of Pentecost. Or he's standing and preaching as he's testifying to all of these servants who, uh, uh, well, not, not servants of God, but servants of men, the Pharisees, the council who want to kill him. There's also a private man that, that Luke wants you to see. Publicly, he's been the preacher of the gospel. In this text, he's a servant. He's the minister of the gospel right now in our passage. These two passages show us the private minister that Peter was. 
Okay? And from it, we really see two key things. Christ's servants, people who serve Christ, they love the least of these. And then secondly, Christ's servants show no partiality. That's what we see in this servant in Peter. Let me show you. So Christ's servants love the least of these. The little story there that I read, verses 32 through 35, show us uh, Peter interacting with a man named Aeneas. Now, you look in verse 32. It says, now as Peter went, it says, here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. Peter took the words of Christ recorded in John uh, about, about Jesus being a good shepherd, and he made it his own ministry, and he, in his ministry, is like a shepherd to the sheep. So picture these churches growing up all around Jerusalem. And here is Peter going down, uh, uh, which, by the way, remember, Jerusalem's on a hill. And so he's going down. He's actually going north and west toward the sea. Uh, but, but nonetheless, he goes down. And, and what's he doing? He's like a shepherd going in and among the sheep. From Peter, we get the Holy Spirit's clear picture of a servant leader who is like a gentle shepherd. Go read 1 Peter 5 if you want to make note. 1 Peter 5 shows it. And this verse right here, verse 32, shows the shepherd Peter with a great awareness loving the least of these. So look at verse 34 and 30, or 33 and 34. What did he do? He heals a paralytic, this guy named Aeneas, who we know nothing about. Luke includes him here. Uh, but we know nothing besides this passage. But maybe that's the point. No one would know anything about such an unknown person if it were not for the love and compassion of Christ working through his servant. I want you to see this. Peter looks a lot like Jesus here. You know, Jesus was well known for preaching in the cities, from city to city as he moved. Jesus had a very public ministry. But the minister of Christ, someone who really wants to serve Christ, they can't just have all public. They also have to be able to get into the weeds. There's this awesome story in Mark 10 where this blind man named Bartimaeus, he hears that Jesus is coming because he can't see him. And he starts to shout out loud, screaming, Son of David, son of David, have mercy on me. And everybody's really frustrated by it. I imagine Peter was, because it says in Mark 10, the disciples were frustrated at this man for he was causing such a scene. They're like, hey man, be quiet. Jesus is going on to do his ministry he needs to do. This is our, our preaching Jewish Messiah who needs to go and, and, and really confront the masses. He doesn't have time for a blind beggar like you, Bartimaeus. Shut your mouth. And Jesus, in Mark 10, really hears, <laughs> he hears Bartimaeus in ways that people don't. Because Jesus is the preacher, but he's also the minister who comes, and he comes to this blind man, Bartimaeus, and he heals him. And it says that this blind beggar, Bartimaeus, followed Jesus. Peter's a minister who does not overlook even the Aeneases in the church. This is a random church gathering that he's at there. And uh, in Lydda, which is a tiny little place. And he's going around preaching and teaching. And yet the compassion of Christ wells up in Peter when he sees this, this man who's been a, a beggar, poor, a paralyzed one, bedridden for eight years. 
The confidence of Peter in verse 34 is really astounding. There's no question in Peter's mind. Look at it. He says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your own bed. This man's only been served by others for eight years in his bed. And now Jesus has come and transformed his life and, and his faith has made him well. Peter knows that, even though the text doesn't say it. And what happens? Look at the effect. A real minister of Christ ministers for God's glory alone. And then what happened? God gets lots of glory. Look at verse 35. All the residents. Now, hold on a second. Wait, what? I thought we were only talking about Aeneas, this dude, one guy. But yeah, here's the deal. Peter's compassion, which is like Christ, a true servant, he was looking out for God's glory, and in searching for God's glory, he had eyes to see one need, and he met it, believing in God's glory. And then God takes it, and we have the word all again. Look at verse 35. All the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, the man, and they turned to the Lord. That's amazing. If you want to be a servant of Christ, have pray prayers like, God, give me eyes like, like Peter. Make me a minister like this. What does it mean that these people turn to the Lord? Okay, this is largely a Gentile region. So these residents are very strained Jews at best. They're committed pagans at worst. Peter's individual, personal care for Aeneas to share the gospel with him, to heal him, body and soul, you know what it did? It led to the glorification of God through this rumor. This rumor spreads like wildfire. These people are coming, sought out. Uh, they're seeking out by these residents to confirm what happened. And what do they do? It says that they repent and believe the gospel. Break this down with me. They. This is actual people of Lydda and Sharon. Okay? These are people made in the image of God who created everything. It says they turned. They turned from their sin. They turn from sin that separates them and all people from God. In that separation, they, is death. Death is felt now for them. It, was, it will come. They've seen it. And then now they have been made aware there is an eternal death separating them from God. And this word is the entire truth that they repent of actual sin, confessing it, believing it, is bringing death to them, and acknowledge they need help. It says, they turned to the Lord. Jesus Christ is the Lord who lived for them, died for them, rose for them, and is now preached to them for their salvation. All that right there. They turned to the Lord. Christ's servants love the least of these. That's what they do. Peter shows that clearly in the text here. Why? All glory to God. I wonder if this could maybe encourage small acts of obedience in the church. I really think it can. When you understand that God has so in mercy given you a new heart and saved you, you should look with compassion and mercy toward others. I'm talking about strangers and friends and children if you're growing in impatience and frustration and anger or dismissal or shyness or timidity, I argue maybe you are not the Christ-like servant you need to be. And maybe for you, looking to the same place these lost people in, in Lydda do, look to Jesus, the real minister of the gospel, 
who doesn't regret saving you, who loves you, who still forgives you, who wants to equip you to be like this Peter. I need this hope, so do you. Christ's servants love the least of these. We are the first ones to run in when the bombs go off. We should be. We're the first ones lining up to take care of rejected orphan and widow. I hope it's true. Christ's servants love the least of these. And also we see in this text, look, Christ's servants show no partiality. Okay, so it's, it's clear from that quick account of Aeneas that Christ saves to the utmost those who we sometimes think of as low in society, right? I mean, he cares for the least of these, and so should the Christian minister. The rest of our passage recounts the story of a lady named Dorcas, which is not a popular name for us today, no doubt, which is unfortunate because, like, she's awesome. And, uh, you know, if somebody was bold enough to name their daughter Dorcas, uh, that'd be okay because it's a sweet name. But, you know, um, here's the thing. Obviously, this story is a powerful account of a miracle uh, during the apostolic age that affirms the message of the gospel. But let's establish that quickly. Okay, the details are all there. This woman is dead for a while. Similar to Lazarus, who Jesus raised. She's not stinking yet, but they've washed her body and put her up in the upper room. A lot of commentaries disagree on why that's the case. Most of them think, though, that they had already learned that Peter was present, and so rather than lock her away, let's see if something can happen. But regardless, Peter goes in alone. Similar to Jesus in other accounts, right? Taking the group he was with, but making it smaller, making it private. He dismisses them. You know, Jesus, when he raised Jairus' daughter back from dead to life in the, new, in the accounts of the gospel, it was just Peter, James, and John present. But here goes Peter um, in there, and he dismisses everyone. He simply calls her to life. God's unique ability. God alone speaks, and life exists. You should remember, you know, shout out to systematic theology if you've been attending. God speaks. His word creates life. And so Peter speaks God's word and God's word. What happens? She lives. And so he presents her casually to the house, similar to Jesus as well. In the resurrection accounts where Jesus brings out those whom he has raised. And then God works salvation for many. Very similar to Jesus's miracles, allowing him to preach the truth in greater capacity. Here now we see the establishing of, of the church. The purpose of this miracle, we learn, was that so that God may continue to go and work in the church in Joppa and bring many to salvation. Okay, that's the story. Not so obvious, however, is what our main point is. You see, like Christ, Christ's servants should show no partiality. And Peter does that. Luke is actually cluing us in on how phenomenal it is that Peter is there in the first place, okay? Let me show you. He's actually bombarding us with a lot of little hints. He noticed he said Joppa. That's where this takes place. This is a notoriously Gentile uh, city at this point in history. It belonged to Israel forever in a lot of Hebrew history. Um, the Jews actually took it back from the Gentiles when Judas Maccabeus, that may ring a bell, in the first Maccabees, which is a historical account of Jewish historical account of, of 100, about 130 years before Christ came. They actually uh, took it, the Seleucids took it uh, back from the Gentiles. But when the Gentiles got it back, they drowned 200 Jews in the ocean just off of Joppa. 
So I mean, not just Gentiles, but like Gentiles who just in recent history drowned a bunch of fellow Jewish brethren of, the, of ours, right? So the Jews would think in this area. So Peter would think. At this point, it had been Gentile filled since 37 BC. Peter would have never gone there on his own, but for the sake of the gospel, there he is. Notice it's not just Dorcas, is it? What's her name? Luke wants you to know it's Tabitha and Dorcas, right? Showing us what? Luke shows us that the first apostle to raise a dead person to life, so clue, on, clue in on this, is a woman disciple so diverse that she actually was known by her Aramaic and Greek name. So God is bringing out of the grave a woman disciple who's Greek. That is so not, pre-Jesus Peter, as a Jewish man, would never have gone to Joppa, nor would he ever have associated with a woman with Greek associations in their house when she's dead, by the way, which means she's unclean. Also a Jewish no-no. But for the sake of the gospel, Peter's there. Finally, verse 43. Did you see what he said? And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a Tanner. We are getting a serious portrait of a Christian minister at this point. This may not mean much to you on the outset, but it was a big deal then for a Jew. Why? Tanners are those who work with dead animal skins. They create clothes and fabric from them. This would have been unfathomable for a Jew. It was a, it, to work in that kind of field would have been a shame, to go and spend time around such a place would be a shame. But for the sake of the gospel, Peter's there. Conclusion, the gospel's worth it and Peter knows it. He knows it. He shows no partiality. If we are Christ's servants, then we need to follow this example. Christ's servants love the least of these, as we've said. If you're loving people just like you, or only those around you that you surround yourself with, then you really need to call your Christian obedience into doubt. Don't be so quick to call it Christian obedience if you are only always surrounded by people who look and smell and talk and, and react and think and do just like you've always done in your faith. Because the faith that lands Peter as a good shepherd, uh, among, excuse me, as an under-shepherd among the sheep, pointing to the good shepherd and lands him in a city he never would have been in with people he never would have hung out with, staying in a, in, a, in, a, in a room where he never would have slept, all for the sake of the gospel. Let his example cause conviction in our lives. If we turn to the Lord today in heartfelt repentance, God will have ready for us a million Aeneases, tons of Dorcases, people dead in their sins in need of resurrection life. But how will they know if we are convinced to show partiality? Because secondly, Christ's servants show no partiality. You may do well at believing you know, this rightly. I know I do. I know that I, I want to believe there's no partiality. But you may find it hard to be surrounded by it like Peter. We must judge by Scripture, not by culture. See, our culture's answers are broken you know, I mean, bro, you know, woke is broke. I know that's a joke, but like, but the idea of our culture saying, let's not show partiality, it's different. Their answers are broke and woke. Ours 
our spirit and truth. But we need to do a better job is to stand up and show how our God shows no partiality by getting among people that, that we would maybe in the past show partiality to and living there, like spending more time with them. God wants to use me and you to restore Dorcas's in our lives. There's a million opportunities awaiting. And so Peter's an example for us. He's not an apostle over us. You know, I said earlier that the Roman Catholic Church for centuries has traced through apostolic succession the hope of a Christian minister like Peter. They've done it to the point of error in separating the shepherd from the sheep to such a degree that only confession and forgiveness for sins can be found in fill in the blank, Christian ministry or doing this good work or this and that. And rightly so, Protestants, as I've pointed out in the introduction, stood up early in that time and they said, hold on, let us reconnect, the, the, let's re-understand, you know, let's reform our thinking to the true gospel, which showed a Jesus, a high priest, immersing himself in all of the diversity of a messed up sinful group of people like us and being the greatest high priest that we could ever have. And he's made us that. Let's recover that, church. Let's see its authority. And I think in the, this text, the book of Acts is beckoning. Luke is beckoning you to consider. They fear God. They keep his commandments. They have peace. They're built up. They're among one another. And they realize that they are different. And what happens? They serve. And what kind of servant are they? They show no partiality. They love the least of these. Can we do this? Papal conclusions, as I've introduced and now finishing with, in their doctrine, they're, they're, they're just wrong, right? And we understand that, but our reaction must be not to pull so far away from this idea of gathering, this idea of leadership, this idea of discipleship, this idea of church, verse 31. We should not pull so far away that in the name of doing the church and away from the institution, we are able to reach the Dorcases and the, the people of Joppa. There's a balance. I think Acts is going to unfold from this point on, and it's going to always continue to walk this balance. You will always see both. The moment the church takes on too much of an ecclesia, an institutional idea, Luke is going to show you, do not forget about this one pagan who's converted. Because the moment that the church begins to get its eyes off of Jesus and on other things institutionally, it stops looking at what Jesus wants in his church, which is more people, right? And so there's this balance. Right here, it's just a seated. It's seated for us. But it's a good conclusion. Peter's an example of us for us. He's not an apostle over us. He is an example that teaches us about the importance of Christ as the head of the church, giving peace and comfort, as well as a servant in Christ's church that is actually doing the work. May it be so for me and you. If we stand anywhere, we have to stand on the rock of Christ. And so as we respond together, brothers and sisters, and sing, and then pray, let's believe that really what Jesus said is true. The gates of hell will not prevail against what we're doing. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the hope we have and what we're about to sing and what we have preached, that you, God, are the solid rock. 
We may build on a lot of places without hope. But we know that our hope is built truly on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And so will you help us to stand on the solid rock that is the Christian faith? Lord, we pray for our, our friends in the Roman Catholic Church who we hope are brothers and sisters, but we pray, God, having brought them up even just now, that you would, that you would just make them wise unto salvation from the Scriptures to see that the church, by your Spirit, by you directly, had peace and was being built up. And in it, your servant Peter went. As an example for me, as an example for Blake, as elders, as an example to the flock, as saints who would be able to go forth and have a ministry. Will you, Lord, use this text to correct us, Help us to find in our own lives Aeneas or Tabitha. And we pray that if we do, God, that we will find dependence on you. Help us to show no partiality. Help us to consider those who are weaker and struggling where we're not, God. And help us to find that we have an ability to minister to them. And may we do it. God, what a blessing it is for us that we're missing out on if we're not taking part in it. And so we thank you for the blessing that the church is. And we pray, God, you'll help us to be committed to her as you are. So help us to sing now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.